Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before she was the star of HBO's Sex in the City, Sarah Jessica Parker found a lot of work doing pretty typical supporting roles, like a lot of actors. You know, not the woman in the rom-com who gets married to her soulmate, the woman with whom that woman dishes. If you ask Sarah about it, though, she'll tell it to you straight. She wouldn't have had it any other way. Maybe it's just the way I'm choosing to remember them, but those were always, for me, the more interesting role anyway. They weren't on screen as long, and um, they never got to kiss anybody, but they always had insight, and they were a source of comfort, and they were counsel and ears and eyes and witness to, and you always knew that if they could just survive until college, the world was going to be their oyster, and... Maybe that's because that's how I felt. (laughs) It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Sarah Jessica Parker. She's the star of HBO's new show, Divorce. It's in the middle of its first season. She's a producer on the show. She always knew what she wanted the tone to be like. 70s cinema played, was the central inspiration inspiration for me. I mean, that's what I kept circling around and I encouraged everybody else to circle around and, um, you know, all the great movies from the 70s and how they were shot and music from the 70s. I wanted that to not only play a really important role, but I imagined that that music was the music as separate young people they fell in love to. Later, I'll tell you about the singer I turn to whenever I'm feeling down, feeling anxious, when I'm worried about the uncertainty that lies ahead. Plus, a very special live set from comedian Dwayne Kennedy, recorded at the first-ever Chicago Podcast Festival. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get to my interview with Sarah Jessica Parker in a minute. But first, earlier this month, we brought Bullseye to Chicago. And when we decided to go to the Windy City, I knew there was one person we absolutely had to book, Dwayne Kennedy. Dwayne's a stand-up comedian. He's an actor. He's a writer. He's been on Letterman, on Seinfeld, on Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. He is, in my opinion, one of the funniest people alive. Absolutely one of my favorite comics in the world. Here's a bit of Dwayne Kennedy, live in Chicago. Hey, everybody. Oh, man. So, um... Yeah, I'm glad we, uh, this is after, this is 2016, after the fall. <laughs> yeah. How did it happen? I just walked down the street and I look at people, was it you? <laughs> was it you? Man, oh, Lord, this is, I don't you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? Yeah, man, I'm looking for some of my friends to come up missing. Uh, I had some people, man, if that brother, if he wins, I'm, I'm moving to Canada. And I thought, yeah, me too. But then I thought, wait a minute. If all the people who said they were going to Canada go, it's going to be a lot of apartments available. And uh, <laughs> I've had my eye on yours. So, you know what I mean? You, know, you go on to Canada, brother. I'm going to stay in America and make America great again <laughs> at your crib. Lord, man, when is when is Jesus coming back? That's you ever think when is he when I think that's what's happening, man. I think this whole thing is some sort of biblical apocalyptic, you know, I read the Bible every day. I don't understand it, but I I try to read it. No, because but in the Bible, it says God says God says, do not judge the time of my coming. I will come like a thief in the night. Well. Here's the thing about that. I live on 103rd and Cottage. You know who comes like a thief in the night on 103rd and Cottage? Everybody. Everybody. It's like, say, God, rather than coming like a thief in the night just to be on the safe side, you you might want to come like a mailman in the morning. 
You know, the only religion I like, man, the only people who don't, you never, I like Amish, the Amish, man. We got, right? Is any Amish here? Probably not, because it's, they heard it be electricity about, so, you know, I mean, just, but you know what I mean? Because I'm, you, you never hear about fundamentalist Amish terrorism, you know, right? You never hear that, right? Because they're good people, right? They, they work hard, they get up like 3.30 in the morning, you know, and by 9 o'clock, you're going to be pretty much too tired to kill anybody, you know. <laughs> you never hear about that. Funny, you, never hear, you never hear somebody say, like, uh, 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 you, you heard what happened, man? You hear about the Amish terrorist that uh, ran his horse and buggy into the federal building yesterday? <laughs> no, I didn't hear about that. What happened to the building? Nothing. I think because they, they're peaceful people, man, loving people. And, and plus, I think when you don't believe in using chemicals or electricity, you know, it's, it's probably going to be hard to make a bomb. <laughs> you know, that's going to do much damage. It's like, yeah, that's an Amish bomb, all right. How can you tell? What's it made out of? Ammonium nitrate? Nitroglycerin? No, wood. That's your classic Amish wooden bomb right there. You could tell it was meant to do maximum damage because in the side of the block of wood, he carved the word kablooey. <laughs> Lord, man, this is, uh, is going to be interesting times, brother. Right? May you live in interesting times. I don't want to live in interesting times. I just want to live. You know what I mean? This is, this is, uh, and then people tell me, man, just don't worry. Just, yeah, just baby, <laughs> black folk, just baby, just, just hold on to God. Hold on to Jesus, baby. Nobody loves Jesus more than old black women, man. <laughs> nobody. No, no, nobody. <laughs> no. I was in a movie theater, man. It was pitch dark. And an old black woman's cell phone went off. And I knew it was an old black woman's cell phone because she had an old black woman ringtone. You're like, praise his name. Praise his name. Praise his name. Praise his hello. Huh? No, babe, I'm at the movie. They done dropped me off at the movie again by myself. Huh? No, movie about this man, he in love with this woman. He don't know what he doing. What, what y'all do, huh? Cooking greens? No, I don't put no ham hocks in my green no more. I just use turkey tail because my cholesterol is so high. Huh? Who's that, in the, who's that talking in the background? Is that my grand? Put my grandbaby on the phone. Yeah. Hey, baby, huh? No, no, this your, no, baby, this your grandmama. They done dropped me off at the movie again by myself. Was it, oh, oh, baby, I got to go. Somebody done hit me in the head with a box of Raisinette and told me to shut the hell up. Peoples are so rude. <laughs> all right, you all. Hey, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Good night. That was Dwayne Kennedy, recorded live on Bullseye at the Promontory Theater in Chicago. Dwayne put out an album earlier this year called Oh No, It's Dwayne Kennedy. You can get it on Amazon.com. We also interviewed Dwayne back when that record came out. Google it. Search for it on the Internet. It's the best way to find it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Sarah Jessica Parker kicked off her career at 15 years old, starring on the CBS teenage comedy Square Pegs. In fact, even before that, she played Annie on Broadway. From there, she appeared in movies like Footloose, L.A. Story, and Hocus Pocus, and also Sex in the City. Maybe you've heard of that. No big deal. Anyway, now she is the star of HBO's Divorce. It's a comic drama, and you'll be surprised to learn that it's about divorce. Sarah plays Frances, a corporate recruiter who's been with her husband, Robert, played by Thomas Hayden Church, for almost 20 years. 
The show takes on topics like commitment, fidelity, even finances in a totally frank, kind of brutal and often very funny way. Here's a scene from the show's pilot. Frances is giving her husband the bad news. You spent last Christmas fishing in Alaska. No, no, hang on a second. That's the only time of the year that the Chinook salmon run in those numbers. And you said you didn't mind. I didn't mind. It was the best Christmas I have had in years. You're welcome. Sometimes I come home from work and I'm happy. I actually feel happy. And then I see your car there parked and I realize you're home. And my heart sinks. Is this about my old job? Is that what this is about? I want to save my life while I still care about it. I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. Sarah Jessica Parker, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I want to ask you something um, uh, serious to begin with, which is I had this experience a, a couple of years ago where uh, a pair of good friends of myself and my wife uh, split up. They were married. And... Um, my my own parents were divorced when I was very young, and I you know I always thought oh that was for the better. I mean they didn't get mm. along. Um, but when these friends of mine were splitting up, uh, I sort of freaked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> like I was really legitimately <laughs> freaking out about it. These people <laughs> live three thousand miles from me. <laughs> like I I care about them very much, but they. I see them once a year. <laughs> right. And uh, it it occurred to me, like, how intense. I just, I guess I had just never asked. I just walled off that part of my my life experience. Mm-hmm. And the wall just crumbled all in one go. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I wonder what it's like for you to live with, in the way that you live with this subject when you're making a TV show live with divorce, you know, every day when you go to the office? Yeah. Um, the experience is um, not um, not a personal exploration for me, you know, uh, in terms of trying to sort out my own home life, but rather, I guess in some ways, what you have described as witnessing your friend's marriage fall apart. You know, for me, it's a fascinating way to spend a lot of hours because uh, I guess, you know, the reason that I was interested initially in developing this show was because I, I, I like yourself, I was watching friends' marriage uh, fall apart. I was witnessing friends um, contemplate affairs, friends have affairs, marriage survive affairs, marriage be better for having having one party uh, have an affair, you know, uh, um people contemplating divorce, not divorcing, all those things that surround um, surround you when you reach a certain point in your life and people have been in committed relationships, meaningful, substantive relationships. And I like very much exploring it. It's the exact way I wanted to do it. It's the tone that I was hoping for because it's for some, it's devastating. For others, it's um, an opportunity to sort of... Um, make alliances. Um, and I think it's really complex. And I think people's reactions to divorce when it's not their own are really often surprising to themselves. Does it, does it freak you out? I mean, the, the, like when you, <laughs> when you spend time with it in your heart, do you, do you feel freaked out? And I don't mean like in the sense like, uh, does it make you feel like, uh, uh, you and your husband are going to get divorced? Um, but like, it's it's like an existential dread for me. <laughs> I think I think it doesn't freak me out. Sometimes it m- makes me very sad, um, and I'm um, I don't know. I'm not I'm not freaked out by it because it's both an artistic and academic exercise in some ways, and for me, I guess. I've been an actor for so long that I 
um, I have found a way to compartmentalize the work. Um, I also come home to three children and a active household and chaos, and um, I don't. I'm not at liberty to let it um, penetrate really beyond the threshold in some way of my own home. Um, but I love the story. I like pushing on the bruise. I, I've always been that way, and um, I've, I'm much more interested in the potential to be freaked out than not. You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Sarah Jessica Parker after a break. She'll talk about how, of all the different scenes and situations she went through on Sex in the City, the hardest thing about the show was just sitting around at the coffee shop shooting the breeze. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. National and local stories, many of which have nothing to do with the election, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One is ready to make the holidays, waiting in line, or waiting for a friend better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Concord Bicycle Music with R.E.M.'s 25th anniversary deluxe edition of their album Out of Time. The newly remastered album features 19 never-before-heard demos, including a previously unreleased 1991 live show, eight music videos, and more. Now available at Amazon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Sarah Jessica Parker. Her new HBO show, Divorce, is wrapping up its first season. It just got picked up for a second. I want to play a pushing on the bruise scene from Divorce. So uh, your character, whose name is Francis, is a headhunter. And this is the this is the cold open of, of the third episode. And she's sitting down with a client who's looking for a new gig. Um, and they have this conversation. I never thought I'd be the kind of guy to use a headhunter. Executive recruiter. Oh, sorry. But I want to know what's out there for me. Okay. Uh, what are you looking for? I'm not sure. Mm. So I've been at this job for 20 plus years, and mm-hmm. it's just the same thing over and over and over mm. and over again. I'm not getting any younger. Call me crazy, but I want a new challenge. It's a whole big world out there, and uh, I've lost 20 pounds. I want to see how I fit into it. And we're too late for a fresh start, right? Yes, right. Maybe. So I was thinking. But doesn't it make more sense, Ted, to hold on to what you've got? Because if you lose it, then you might end up with nothing at all. Nothing. And then what is there to do but wrestle with your own regrets while you wait around to die? Um, I, I mean, I, I was just wondering what was out there. What if there's nothing out there, Ted? Just a thought. she seems ill-equipped to be doing that job right now (laughs) i think she's um projecting far too much onto those poor um innocent job seekers that that may yes be the subtext of that scene possible um it seems like one of the big things that's going on in divorce is these characters essentially trying to figure out who they are without this context that they've relied on. And it's something that I think a lot of people who are in long-term relationships can uh, relate to, that you define yourself in relationship to the people around you and especially to your, you know, your spouse and children, you know, your family. Um, I I wonder if you've ever been in this position where you lost the, you know, the things that you defined yourself relative to and had that kind of combination of possibility and, uh, <laughs> I guess, terror uh, that that comes with that. I think that in some ways what's happening right now in this country is a version of what you describe. You know, it's this kind of point of reckoning for everybody. I think people feel a, a tremendous sense of loss and it, a readjustment and sort of figuring out who they can be moving forward, how to 
maintain values and um, find a voice. And I, I think people feel untethered. And um, I think for Francis, it's 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 in fact that thing, that idea. That, you know, you played the clip, and for me, is the sort of fulcrum for the whole show is when she says, "I want to save my life while I still care about it." And um, I think that it, it, you know, this idea of who we think we want to be, these ideas of freedom and liberty, and for Frances, this idea of liberation from this marriage that she feels is um, de- deadening, and you know, this there's this sort of inertia that is unbearable. You were on Sex in the City for six or seven years, and or it, ten or twelve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, you, a, a further, a further several thereafter, um, and you know, like on the one hand, this is the greatest job in the world. You're, you're working on a, a great show that is just like culturally iconic, and you got a great part on it, um, and you're great in it. Uh, everybody thinks so. And uh, you go to work every day, and you know you're you're doing a good job working on a good thing, right? And that ends. And on the one hand, you have the kind of extraordinary possibilities that come with, you know, being in show business and coming off of a big success. Uh, on the other hand, you are no longer living with this thing where you just like went to work nine months a year or whatever it was. And knew that you were working on the thing that you do, and I wonder what that was like for you. Um, it was uh, um, all sorts of things. Um, I felt that at the time, <clears throat> pardon me. I felt at the time that it was important that I stop doing the show. I loved it for all the reasons you've cited, and uh, you know, many, many more. Um, but I recognized, you know, up until that point in my career, I'd always been a journeyman. And that's exactly what I wanted most was to just do lots of different things and work in the theater and then do a movie. And then, I, I don't know, whatever came my way that was interesting. And, and not only that, possibly allowed me to pay my bills. And at a certain point, as I sort of sat in the cozy cradle of this extraordinary experience, both Michael Patrick and I realized that um, maybe we should stop and <laughs> maybe we should um, fi- finish telling this story at this time, also while we were, you know, in people's good graces. And um, and I had a new, I had a fairly new son, uh, my first child, and I felt like I needed to have experiences again outside of this experience. And initially, of course, it felt exciting and slightly foreign um, to not be responsible to and for this job and this group of people and um, the people I worked for and with. And over time, it became a very sentimental thing to recall. And I was nostalgic as I walked the streets and remembered what we shot on that corner and, and and that corner and that street and that alley, but I never felt uh, regretful. Um, it it was as full and rich an experience as I could could ever have hoped for, and I never felt burden. I never felt resentful of the association or that it was limiting me in some way, or that it I wanted some of that time back. I just felt like I had been part of something where I got to play a character who was complicated and flawed and I and I loved figuring her, her out and I got to live this alternate in somewhat like an, an alternate universe I'm spending more time sometimes being somebody else than being myself and um, it was so full and so even now when I talk about it it's it's hard to imagine 90 100 hour weeks but I, I wouldn't have changed any of it. <laughs> I like that your actual day-to-day life was essentially a Sex in the City walking tour. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, <laughs> and you know I live downtown, so I also, um, I'm really in the heartbeat of it, always, and um, and it's sweet 
and and nice, but there are times that I have to strategize really quickly about left or right because there are wonderful groups of people standing around <laughs> on corners and stoops, and um, it's not always the opportune time to to chat. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got your you've got ways on your phone programmed to uh, uh, avoid a two block radius of the Magnolia Bakery at all times. <laughs> I have an internal ways, <laughs> without a no, a non app radar ways. There's a look in people's eyes. I can see it from far away, and it's very touching, um, and full of generosity. But I don't. It's not always the right time. I I feel like your character Carrie on Sex in the City was such a fantastical one, like such a fantasy of mm. urbanity, you know. Mm-hmm. And yes. I wonder what part of that was the heaviest lift for you as an actor to do for seven or eight years, or actually ten or twelve years. Um, like, what part of it was the what part of it was easy to put on, and what part of it was tough to put on? Um, so the, the part I liked most, uh, the stuff I liked doing the most was all the emotional stuff. I, I loved it. The stuff for me that is hardest is the, are the coffee shop scenes. (laughs) Hmm. Um, the, um, bippity bip stuff. Um, that was, um, for me the most taxing and I can't even be I can't it's I can't quite explain why I think it felt um I don't know it was it was hard to maintain that kind of souffle all the time right um it was that was a necessary uh part of the storytelling but the sort of that souffle that kind of um and sometimes those scenes were went deep and I love that I love when it was it got yanked down into the basement but the hardest part for me was the um, the kind of whipped cream stuff. I think that I think that souffle seems like a great metaphor because it, it seems like, at least from an outsider's perspective, one of the hardest things about doing that, and especially when you're talking about doing that for a you know twelve or fourteen hour shooting day, and then coming back the next day and picking up a few extra hours, is that you know to some extent, if you're playing a big emotional conflict you get benefit from pushing harder. Um, You know, you can always throw more weight into it. And it seems like one of the challenges of doing 12 hours of breezy lightness that has to, that is a very specific and kind of perfect kind of breezy lightness is that if you push it, the souffle deflates. Completely. This is why I wanted to be on your show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly and it's a fine it's a it's a very well as souffles are they're very delicate they're very tender they're made of glass actually not dairy products and um and also as you describe these days of the camera moving 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 overs masters masters from that side that side that side that side which you know it's your job to find the you know stamina but there is something that um, is – it doesn't charge more. And you do. If you push, it's grating, it's cloying, being cute, charming. When it's effortful, it's really unbearable for any dis- any discerning audience. But you're really good at being cute. I mean, like, if I think oh, of – If I think of you in, uh, like, L.A. Story or something – you know that is as that is a world that is even more fantastical than <laughs> sex in the city right like it's like a yeah. it's an absurd world yes <laughs> um and you have this impossible job which is to be like a completely absurd caricature that feels like a real and genuinely interesting and charming human being <laughs> like, <laughs> well that's you're right. always on roller skates you know what i mean like that's, yes yeah. just start there try and play any character as a relatable human being who's always wearing roller skates. <laughs> who's always moving. Yeah. Um, and the reason that was, I think, doable 
and not only doable but compelling as an actor is because it because it was Steve Martin's version of an ingenue. It wasn't um, conventional in any way, which I'm convinced is the only reason I got the job because I never got jobs like that prior to Steve Martin saying I was um, acceptable for that idea because she was so... That was such an odd world he created. I mean, that was, in fact, an, uh, an altered world. It was well into the future. It was such a peculiar, wonderful place to be. And so she was part of that world. And otherwise, she would have been your boilerplate kind of girl that was too young for the fellow. You know, not not at all interesting. Let's hear some L.A. stories. So uh, your character's name was Sandy, which had a very unusual spelling. And um, <laughs> I'm glad that in my notes about this, they've reproduced the spelling exactly in order to confuse me. Do you want, do you want me to see if I can get it right from memory? Yeah, go for it. Uh, big S, small A, small N, big D, small E, big E with like a little star at the end or something. Yeah, you nailed it. Nailed yes. it. So uh, you and Steve Martin's character, whose name is Harris, are coming back from a date in this scene. And um, this being uh, Steve Martin's Los Angeles 1991, immediately uh, you are suggesting that Harris get a colonic from her place in Santa Monica. Have you ever had a high colonic? Pardon me? A high colonic. You mean an enema? Yeah. Yeah. Keep waiting for you to say joke. Oh, they're great. I mean, they really purify you. There's this place in Santa Monica that do it. Oh, they're great. Oh. This is this where you live? Yeah. Yeah, here. It's really groovy. <laughs> well, good night. Good night. I was listening to you talk to Alec Baldwin on his show, Here's the Thing, and you were talking about your early career. And I was thinking of um, a great actress who's who's been on this show and is so wonderful and brilliant named Judy Greer. And and also about other women uh, actresses, uh, women actresses who are funny. Um, and the world of quirky best friends, um, which seems to be often the world that anyone who is a woman who is funny has changed somewhat, but um, anyone who's a woman who's funny is consigned to uh, or given the opportunity to play in. I mean, there's good things about it, too. But but like the, your early career was um, standing next to uh uh, a pretty girl. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like yeah, like a movie star looking. I mean, you're you're real pretty, Sarah. I, I, oh. I'm not. But <laughs> no, no, uh, no, no, no. I put you in a terrible position. But uh, um, I, I think you, I think you know the kind of thing I'm talking yes. about. And I think mm-hmm. for some people that feels like a that feels like a prison. You know, there's some people who just. I mean, I know, uh, like for example, uh, Sarah Silverman. She's just like, yeah, I'm just not going to do that ever, and. For that reason, she's you know she's worked a lot more as a comic than she has as an actress because that's what show business wants her to do. Um, and uh, uh, it sounded like partly you kind of liked you kind of liked the part where you were uh, you know you were just working and doing different stuff. Mm-hmm. I yes, I mean obviously there are. There are a lot of jobs I just simply took because I really needed to, you know, pay my con ed bill or um, – but the jobs, the things that I remember most and that were most meaningful often were the cerebral best friend of the pretty girl. And I say that because – Don't sell yourself were... short, Sarah. You also <laughs> played the quirky best friend of the pretty girl. That's true. That's true. Um, but I – but those were – well, maybe it's just the way I'm choosing to remember them, but those were always, for me, the more interesting role anyway. Yeah. They weren't on screen as long, and um, they never got to kiss anybody, but they always had insight, and they were a source of comfort, and they were counsel and ears and eyes and witness to, and you always knew that if they could just survive until college, the world was going to be their oyster. and. Maybe that's because that's how I felt. <laughs> um, 
but I I liked them and um I, I you know I used to people used to say well you know maybe you should pluck your eyebrows or get a nose job or all sorts of ideas about um the a, an easier avenue toward something else um that I guess seemed you know like success for me everybody I admired and I those that I look to ever seem bothered by other people's opinions of them in some way. They just wanted to work. I have more of my conversation with Sarah Jessica Parker after a break. She'll tell me about the first time she kissed her now husband, Matthew Broderick. She says it was just as cool as you'd think it would be to kiss Ferris Bueller. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. There's a new show at NPR, and it's a little different from what we've done before. It's called Radio Ambulante, and it's in Spanish. Our first ever podcast in Spanish, in fact. The show takes a look at Latin America and U.S. Latino communities, bringing you stories that you might not otherwise hear. Punk rock in Cuba, stolen books in Colombia, junk bonds in Puerto Rico. Hosted by novelist Daniel Alarcón, Radio Ambulante takes Latin American stories from the inside. Check it out on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Tushy. Wiping with dry toilet paper has been the norm in America since the 1890s. Tushy believes our bathrooms are ready for a cleaner, healthier, and greener change. Tushy is a sleek bidet that attaches to any standard toilet and is designed to spray your nether regions completely clean and be better for the environment than wiping. It takes just 10 minutes to install it yourself. Shop bidets for modern humans at hellotushy.com slash bullseye or use the discount code bullseye for 10% off a Tushy bidet. It's Bullseye. We'll get to the rest of my interview with Sarah Jessica Parker in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about Pop Rocket. It's Bullseye's sister show. It's a dynamic weekly roundtable about everything we love in pop culture. The host is the very funny and very insightful comedian, Guy Branham. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week on Pop Rocket, we are talking about TV shows about food. We're talking about cooking shows. We're talking about cooking competition shows. And we're talking about the cooking celebrities who inspire us most. Check it out. Sounds delicious, Guy. Pop Rocket. Find it in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. I'm sorry that I said that the show about food sounds delicious. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, I'm talking with Sarah Jessica Parker. She's the star of the new HBO show Divorce and, of course, Sex and the City, among many other things. Was it weird for you after, I mean, you had basically been acting for like 20 years by the time you started on Sex and the City. Was it strange for you when Sex and the City really got rolling um, to be responsible not just for a performance but for being beautiful and glamorous? I mean, that is so, like, that's an essential part of what Sex and the City is. And it seems like it would just be, (laughs) it would just be such a thing to carry around because you can't do that much. I mean, you can like be fit and wear pretty clothes, which you, you did both of. But besides that, there's not that much you can change about it. Mm, yeah, I, I um, I never felt a responsibility to live up to that outside the that story. I mean, I know I disappoint people all the time <laughs> on the on the streets if I'm not wearing. A really exciting pair of shoes, or I'm shorter, um, or I don't have any makeup on, which is most often the case, or I, you know, they want to know how many shoes I've bought, keep, how large a closet I have. All the answers are disappointing. They're they they're they're shat they shatter people, um, but I love those differences. I delight in telling people that I'm not um, addicted to that experience. Like, no, I don't, you know, I don't have a shoe addiction. I mean, I love well-made shoes. I love a beautiful shoe. You don't find a lot of people who don't 
look at something beautiful and have a response to it, but it's not this fevered relationship. So for some reason, I don't know, I don't know if it's because I was, uh, you know, I was a real grown-up when Sex and the City happened, and I was in many ways baked, cooked. I think the the hardest part for all of us was was understanding what being a public person was that people had any opinions about or feelings for or against, objections to, affection for. I think that was more um, what we had to sort out and integrate into our lives, Um, especially those of us who live in a city where you walk out the door and you're just there. You're just on the streets and um, people have feel very comfortable approaching you as they should. That's the, that's one of the many uh, virtues of living in a city is you're constantly bumping up against other people. The idea of like a, a, an image, not never, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't remember. Maybe I'm more well-adjusted than I ever gave myself credit for being. <laughs> I am just so, I would be so, if, if I can't even begin to tell you how disappointed anyone is when they meet anyone that they've heard on the radio. <laughs> I would be so really? thrilled if one of my responsibilities was uh, to have a lot of shoes because, SJP, your boy's got a lot of shoes. <laughs> so <laughs> if it but were you know like, what I how love? many shoes do you have? I could be like, 65 pairs. And they'd do be like, really? cool, good work. <laughs> Do you have a lot of shoes, really? Oh, dude, I got hella shoes. Wow. See, that's so surprising. But see, that's that idea that you don't and wouldn't and you're above that and better than that and superior to all that nonsense. I say nonsense in quotes. Um, that's just me, see, doing what anyone else rightfully does to me. Um, I think that's fascinating. Have, do you ever talk about your shoes? I have a I have a, I run a one of the world's most popular menswear blogs. Oh my god, I'm so ashamed I didn't know that. There's no reason to be ashamed. I just know bullseye because <laughs> of, of WNYC. <laughs> the world of bl- menswear blogs is a small one. Well, you know what I'll be doing post haste when I leave here today. <laughs> yeah, man, hit hit up my Instagram. Check out these paraboot Tyrolean shoes I'm wearing right now. I'm ready to hike in the Alps. Oh my gosh, I would have never have suspected. I want to play a little bit of a show that you did as a teenager called Square Pegs. And I think in in a lot of ways this show was like the set the standard for your career. It was created by <laughs> Ann Beats. The, uh, she was the only f- female writer on the original writing staff of Saturday Night Live. Really brilliant lady. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, it ran very briefly but was very, very deeply beloved. Um, uh, your character's name is Patty. She has a friend named Lauren, who's played by Amy Linker. And mm-hmm. um, on the show, you're you're basically dealing with regular, classic high school issues. Um, you know, tr- trying to fit in with a popular crowd and that kind of thing. Um, yep. And so th- this this is actually just just the intro of the show. Um, and if you're thinking this feels like a thing from 1982, that's because uh, this is actually from 1982. Listen, I've got this whole high school thing psyched out. It all breaks down into cliques. Cliques? Yeah, you know, cliques. Little in-groups of different kids. All we have to do is click with the right click, and we can finally have a social life that's worthy of us. No way. Not even with cleavage. I told you, this year we're going to be popular. Yeah? Yeah. Even if it kills us. <laughs> oh. oh, they're so dear. Did you feel the impact that that show was having when you were making it? I mean, this was a time before there was recappers and, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, we 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 didn't um, feel it. I I knew when I I mean I when I read the script I couldn't believe somebody was telling I couldn't believe somebody was writing these characters except when I got to know Ann Beats and of course she was and did and um, but a show like that. When it's, you know, it was birthed too soon or something, and though I loved doing it and being part of it, there weren't a whole lot of people that were sharing with us. And keep in mind, too, as you know, people didn't have the same 
immediate way of sharing their feelings and affection for something and support of it was it was later really that it became clear to me that there was this audience that really loved it and connected with it and even felt it was necessary for them to be heard in a way that they this show was giving voice to all those all those internal monologues you know that um people were having and i mean it was an unbelievable show it's it's extraordinary what we got to do before people found out like it was almost like people just turned their back and forgot we were shooting the show in Norwalk, California and i simply think people just forgot and then they saw it, you know, CBS, and they were, oh, you know, and there was also sorts of shenanigans on the set and stuff. But I think it was extraordinarily special. You know, people feel that same way that people feel like their lives were changed by Square Pegs, the, the you know, couple million people that saw it. Um, people feel that way about Hocus Pocus. I know. <laughs> Which I don't know. Like I feel I'm uh, I'm the I was born in 1981. I'm the oldest of millennials, and I feel like I just barely missed the window for having this change my life. This and Space Jam are like the things that I don't understand. Uh, like they they don't have the same meaning to me. Like I'm I'm Princess yeah. Bride era. Yeah. But yeah. like I imagine that like a not insignificant part of your life, based on my experience talking to my peers, is just dealing with people's intense emotional relationships to the movie Hocus Pocus in which you play a funny witch. It's inexplicable to me. I don't, I, I, I'm so, so touched and tickled by this. It confounds me. I, I, I am without, I don't understand it. <laughs> I, I've only seen the movie once. I only ever see anything once, if that many times, anything I'm in. You know, like there are a few people in the world who have an intense emotional relationship with my work, especially my my comedy show. And uh, that's like pretty representative of me and who I am. I mean, it's, you know, a piece of who I am. It's not the totality of who I am, but I'm I feel pretty responsible for it. Um, I think it must be weird to have people have an intense emotional relationship with your work as an actor. Uh because your work as an actor is you representing uh, someone else, sometimes someone who may be substantially or completely different from you. Yes. I I mean, I've really had to um, figure it out and um, try to find ways to talk about it that don't sound as if I'm wanting to separate myself from any of it, but rather to distinguish the difference that I am very different from almost everybody I've played. I always say the only the thing that the thing that is most similar is that we look alike. But everything else has felt very different to me, which is why I've been why I've wanted to play the part. Your husband is the actor Matthew Broderick. Did you have a relationship with his work before you knew him as a human being? Like, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but like, he was Ferris Bueller, for example. <laughs> um, not only did I have a relationship, but with his work, but <clears throat> before I met him, um, I when I met him, I realized. Wow, I've paid for all your movies. Meaning, <laughs> as an audience, I couldn't say that about a lot. I could say it about Woody Allen's movies. From the time I was a young child, we always went to see Woody Allen movies. Um, and when I was in Utah shooting Footloose that summer, I think Matthew had maybe two movies out, and I didn't have a car. But on my days off, I would go to the movies, one or two of which were Matthew Broderick movies. So yeah, I was very familiar with him uh, as as a performer, as an actor. I look, I'm uh I think that um any relationship is including a relationship between two very famous people as the two of you are uh is about like just regular people. You know, like I've done this job long enough to know that like everybody is is a person, you know. Mm -hmm. Not to yeah. put too fine a point on it, but like yeah, people are, you know, human beings. 
Uh, but at the same time, I do like the idea that there was some part of you, like the first time you and your husband made out or whatever, <laughs> where you were like, yes, making out with Matthew Broderick. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I've never shared that. The things you are <laughs> – you, you're so probing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought he was – I mean, there was a reason I kept paying to see him. Um, yeah, so when we started dating, um, we met through um, – friends in the theater he was um my brothers and matthew and matthew's best friend founded this theater company called naked angels and i'd be hanging around there and um that's how we met and uh for sure part of that was i'd seen that him on a big screen and liked what i saw um uh how do you feel about thomas hayden church's distinctive mustache on the show divorce (laughs) Um, I like it very much. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that he did that because it really has become uh, the sixth character on the show, um, <laughs> and um, it's been a wonderful it's, conversation. It's on the call Please. sheet. <laughs> I, I, since I had a whole conversation. We had Sharon Horgan on the show when we were in London a couple of months ago. Uh, she and I had an extensive conversation about it backstage. Um, I am ready to make out with him with that mustache. Like, I think he is, uh, I think he looks so handsome with that mustache. Me too. I think it's so great. And it's so, and it is also a little bit, it is both incredibly like dashing and handsome and a little ridiculous in a very perfect way. That really helps define that character who has those qualities. Totally. Absolutely. And I will say one other thing which fits into this idea when we were in prep for the show and in fact earlier than that I started thinking about what I hoped the show would look like cinematically and and what I wanted the music to look like and the costumes and 70s cinema played was the central inspiration for me I mean that's what I kept circling around and I encouraged everybody else to circle around and um you know, all the great movies from the 70s and how they were shot and music from the 70s. I wanted that to not only play a really important role, um, but I imagined that that music was the music as separate young people they fell in love to, you know, a first kiss, um, you know, skipping school, all these things that were um, narrated by 70s music and, um, you know, Albert Wolski and all the great costume designers. and, And so this mustache was part it fits so beautifully into those ideas and just glimpses of things the show is not a period piece um but it is we help tell it with music from the 70s and even the, our composer i really wanted him to find ways of um using the flute um because i felt like it had been ignored for too long and <laughs> i i love the sound and it's so evocative and anybody of a certain age group or who's interested in music would have a reaction, not just to the, obviously, to the source music, but to the composed music as well. So the mustache was this gift because it was, it so beautifully fit into these ideas. Well, Sarah Jessica Parker, I, I, I'm I'm out of time with you, but I'm so grateful that uh, you came in to talk to us. Uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's been such a treat. And It's been a real privilege to have time with you. So thank you so much. Sarah Jessica Parker. You can watch Divorce on HBO, HBO Now, HBO Go. The first season's wrapping up in December. HBO just announced they've renewed it for a second. It's Bullseye. A couple weeks ago, we recorded a live show in Chicago. If you're listening to this show, uh, earlier on you heard a terrific set from the comedian Dwayne Kennedy. And as you know, every week Bullseye gives you a recommendation from me. Live this week from the Promontory Theater in Chicago. It's the outshot. Thanks, guys. The truth is that lately I've been feeling sick. Sometimes when I'm driving my son to school, I feel the knot in my stomach getting tighter and bigger and pressing on my breathing. I get scared and hopeless. I keep crying. 
I'm not a crier. I keep crying. Just trying to do regular stuff like pick out a melon at the supermarket. I swear, I'm, I'm not like this. When have I ever felt this way? I mean, after the earthquake in 1989, eight years old, not wanting to go outside anymore. But I'm a man now. Two kids, one on the way. I'm just torn up. So anyway, I'm reaching for hope where I can find it. And when I'm reaching for hope, usually I'm reaching for Curtis Mayfield. Lately, I've been thinking about my friend Noe. He was a migrant farm worker as a kid with his parents. Now he makes art that tells the stories of the people who are ignored in our country. And I love him. I've been thinking about my colleague Riley. She's trans. Every night she steps out onto a stage where she might be attacked with slurs or worse. And I care for her. I've been thinking about my stepmother, Bernadette. She was an undocumented immigrant, a refugee from war. She's the mother of my brothers. She's a citizen now. I love her. Honestly, I've been thinking about all the folks who are vulnerable and poor, the folks who are scared of what America might be becoming. And I kind of want to have a hug with them, tell them that they belong, tell them that this country belongs to us, to them. And when I'm trying to find love and pride, I turn to Curtis. Look, I'm not an angry man, maybe to a fault. I kind of hold on to it, and that sick feeling just tightens in my stomach. What I want to do is turn it into hope and love. I think of Curtis in 1964, 1965, risking his career to join in a movement to hold America to its own ideals. It's not protest music exactly. It's challenge music. It tells us we belong. It tells us to own our fates, to show our love. Keep on pushing. Keep on pushing. I've got to keep on pushing. My third son is going to be born in February. His name will be Curtis. The world might be scary, but I hope that he faces it with a full heart. Big dreams, compassion, courage. I hope he knows that we're a winner. That's my own shot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producers are Kevin Ferguson and Christian Duenas. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Kara Hart. All our interstitial music is provided to us by DJW, Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team. 
provided to us by Light in the Attic Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, you can. They are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or uh, order up Bullseye in your favorite podcasting software. You can like Bullseye on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. Bullseye is at Bullseye. All of that, very much worth your time. Our special thanks this week to everybody at the Promontory Theater and the Chicago Podcast Festival, where we recorded our live material. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.